Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Tech Meme Ride Home for Friday, August 9th, 2019. I'm Brian McCullough. Today, Uber and Lyft continue to lose money hand over fist. Huawei has a backup OS plan. Piano has a smarter paywall for news outlets. People are texting their number neighbors. And of course, the weekend long read suggestions. Here's what you missed today in the world of tech. Uber has reported Q2 earnings. And let's hit the good news first. Uber's revenues of $3.17 billion were up 14% year over year. And gross bookings of $15.8 billion were up 31% year over year. Also, Uber Eats continues to be a bright spot with revenue of $595 million, up 72% year over year. The number of Eats users grew 140% year over year with 99 million active customers on that platform. Now, though, for the bad news. Quoting the New York Times, for the second quarter, Uber said it lost $5.2 billion dollars the largest loss since it began disclosing limited financial data in 2017. A majority of that, about $3.9 billion, was caused by stock-based compensation that Uber paid its employees after its IPO. Excluding that one-time expense, Uber lost $1.3 billion, or nearly twice the $878 million that it lost a year earlier. On that same basis, and excluding other costs, the company said it expected to lose $3 billion, to $3.2 billion this year, end quote. Now, back to that report of Uber's revenue growing 14% year over year. That actually wasn't the greatest news in the world because that represents the slowest quarterly growth rate Uber has ever disclosed. So in the same quarter, Uber has reported the largest loss in the company's history and the slowest revenue growth on record. Heck, Uber even had to report that its Latin American revenues fell 24% year over year. Now, I didn't mention this because I did want to try to bundle the news together if I could, but in its Q2 revenue report, Lyft actually beat on its revenue number, setting a record for revenue of $867 million for the quarter, while still reporting a net loss of $644 million. When that report came out a couple days ago and Lyft boosted its forecast for the coming year to $3.47 billion in sales, Lyft's stock price jumped briefly, as did Uber's numbers, in anticipation that it would report similarly optimistic numbers. But now, not so much. Uber's stock opened today down 8%. So it was time, once again, for everyone to come out with those can ride-hailing companies actually ever make money articles. And honestly, it does remain an open question. For all of the proliferation of ride-hailing companies around the globe, not a single one of them in any market is making money. 
And none of them, with any twist on the business model, seems to be remotely close to making money. And if, as lots of folks like Shara Ovide anticipated, growth is on the cusp of becoming a thing of the past, in a quarter or two, are we going to have to start thinking about how much runway is left for a lot of these companies? Huawei has officially unveiled Harmony OS, a microkernel-based distributed OS, which Huawei says could be its alternative to Android if trade wars mean Huawei can no longer use Android on its smartphones. Huawei still primarily demoed the new OS as an Internet of Things OS, the much-rumored Hongmeng OS. But when unveiling it, Huawei did acknowledge that this was basically their backup plan. They said that they could put this into their smartphones in one to two days' notice, whatever that means, quoting Engadget. In a nutshell, Harmony OS is positioned as a future-proof, microkernel-based distributed OS for all scenarios. The platform is open source, and it's actually more of a competitor to Google's upcoming Fuchsia, given that both are microkernel-based and can be used on multiple types of devices at once. In his onstage presentation, Huawei Consumer Business Group CEO Richard Yu said that Android isn't as efficient due to its redundant codes, outdated scheduling mechanisms, and general fragmentation issues. Shots fired. According to Yu, Harmony OS has been in the works since 2017, and the version Huawei unveiled today will initially target smart display products, such as the Huawei Vision, due later this year. While this release still packs a Linux kernel and Huawei's earlier LightOS kernel alongside its own microkernel, version 2.0, which is expected sometime in 2020, will feature just a Harmony OS microkernel, thus making it a true Harmony OS. It'll also support high-performance graphics then, to the point where the company hopes it will be powering, quote, innovative PCs, along with wearables, in-car head units, speakers, and VR glasses, end quote. And maybe smartphones, of course. Yes, I should also mention that President Trump made headlines today by saying again that the U.S. will not do business with Huawei. But he said something completely opposite to that recently as well. And he also said that all of this could change if a trade deal happens. And also, I don't know, it's just hard to keep track of what the official position is on any of this trade war stuff on a day-to-day basis. So... I'm just not going to try. Sources say Facebook is offering millions of dollars to various news outlets to license their news content for a news section that the company hopes to launch in its various apps later this year. Facebook is offering as much as $3 million a year for access to headlines or previews of articles. Companies approached include ABC News, Dow Jones, The Washington Post, and Bloomberg, quote, Facebook has proposed giving news outlets discretion over how their content will appear in the news tab, according to people familiar with the matter. News outlets would be allowed to choose between hosting their stories directly on Facebook or including headlines and previews in the tab that would send readers to their own websites, the people said, in which case the news tab would be a generator of web traffic for news outlets in addition to a source of licensing revenue. A person Close to Facebook said it plans to gather feedback from news organizations to help improve the news tab, end quote. So maybe, but the narrative has largely been that 
media organizations have learned the hard way that social media platforms, especially Facebook, are unlikely to be reliable partners, unlikely to save them. So a lot of them have turned to paywalls as maybe the last best hope for saving journalism as a business model. But if this is the case, the question arises, could paywalls at least be smarter? I mean, paywalls have largely been a blunt instrument at this point, right? Click through to read an article, get a tease of a few paragraphs, and then bammo, the gate locks down. Well, guess what? Thanks to a company named Piano, you might start to see paywalls get a little more flexible depending on if the AI algorithms inside Piano determine that you're a good candidate to be converted into a paying customer. Maybe you'll get an extra article or two a month or a newsletter invitation, all depending on which prods Piano thinks would be useful to nudging you into that sales funnel to become a subscriber. And Piano is actually getting decent conversion results for some news sites, quoting Neiman Lab. Since launching the propensity paywall in June, Piano has witnessed it in action for two clients. One saw a 20% increase in its paid conversion rate, and the second saw a 75% increase in visitors converting to subscribers. Now it's in place for five clients across eight sites. They decide who goes first based on, quote, a lot of client need and potential impact, Silberman said. In general, Piano services 1,300 publishers like The Economist, Hearst, Business Insider, and TechCrunch, though publishers need to opt into this paywall setup. Piano wouldn't share which clients are using it, but that would be useful information to have considering the range of news organizations and their audiences and varying propensities to subscribe, end quote. Miro is a visual collaboration platform that gives your team more clarity through comprehensive functionalities that work together with your existing tool sets to make any sprint ritual, whether it be a stand-up estimation, sprint planning, or retrospective, more efficient, clear, and ultimately more productive. When I did the AI resume project, I wanted it done fast and dirty. I used a remote team, and so I used Miro to keep everything on track. Miro helps ensure your team has the context they need before devoting time and resources to get the work done. With Miro, planning team tasks is smoother and gives everyone a clear sense of mission for every sprint. Plan sprints with ease using Miro's planner widget. Connect your team's Jira or Azure instance to your Miro board to visualize and filter tasks by sprint week, status, epic, and team. Normally, mapping dependencies just links one ticket to another, but Miro has visual representations on which tasks are dependent on others. Filter by a critical level, team, and more. Streamline your estimation ritual and quickly check if your team is over or under capacity to help them be more realistic and grounded on the team's capabilities, size, etc. Whether you work in product design, engineering, UX, agile, or marketing, bring your team together on Miro. Your first three Miro boards are free when you sign up today at Miro.com. That's three free boards at M-I-R-O.com. How do you make a password that's strong enough so no one will guess it and impossible to forget and do it for a hundred different sites and make it so everyone in your company can do the same without ever needing to reset them? Sounds impossible unless you have 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. 1Password makes strong security easy for your people and gives you the visibility you need to take action when you need 
two, companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. And you know that a single data breach can cost millions of dollars. One password secures every sign-in to save you time and money. For more than a decade now, One Password has been on every computer and every phone I've ever owned. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com/ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com/ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com/ride. Internet trend alert. There seems to be a fad, at least if I'm to believe Twitter over the last couple days, for number neighbors, whereby people text phone numbers just one digit away from their own phone number and attempt to strike up conversations and maybe even friendships and then share that experience on the socials. Quoting Business Insider, The game has resulted in responses and ensuing conversations ranging from the hilarious to the bizarre. Some users found themselves exchanging memes and pictures, and other participants found themselves chatting with unsuspecting adults who were wholly confused and sometimes upset by the concept of number neighbors. In one of the more viral interactions, a Twitter user described ending up with a new dog after finding out his number neighbor was moving and couldn't take his dog with him. Though a trend like number neighbors may reach a level of virality that it seems impossible there are people who don't know about it, bringing unaware participants into the fold can have some unintended consequences. For 20-year-old Lauren Velarez, her passing decision to see whether she could make friends with her number neighbor instead yielded accusations she was a, quote, wannabe homewrecker from a jealous wife who didn't understand how Velarez got a hold of her husband's phone number, end quote. I don't know about you, but for years I've followed people who have the same name as me, on Twitter. It can be fun to keep track of Bizarro World Brian's and also less sort of invasive, but still kind of stalkery, I guess. Time for the weekend long reads suggestions, beginning with the piece in this week's New Yorker that everyone has been talking about. The one about how Hacker News moderators Daniel Gackle and Scott Bell single-handedly attempt to keep everyone's second favorite tech news aggregation site, Civil. Anna Wiener, the author of the piece, is just an insanely good writer. And for as much as I love Hacker News, this graph basically nails Hacker News's, shall we say, culture, almost poetically, quote, The site's now-characteristic tone of performative erudition, hyper-rational, dispassionate, contrarian, authoritative, often masks a deeper recklessness. Ill-advised citations proliferate. Thought experiments abound. Humane arguments are dismissed as emotional or irrational. Logic, applied narrowly, is used to justify broad moral positions. The most admired arguments are made with data, but the origins, veracity, and malleability of those data tend to be ancillary concerns. The message board intellectualism that might once have impressed VC observers like Graham has developed into an intellectual style all its own. Hacker News readers who visit the site to learn how engineers and entrepreneurs talk and what they talk about can find themselves immersed in conversations that resemble the output of dueling Markov bots. Trained on libertarian economic blogs, The Tim Ferriss Show, and the work of Yuval Noah Harari, end quote. 
The cover story of Bloomberg Business Week this week is about how one man, Joel Stein, tried to use privacy gadgetry to see if he could successfully shield himself from Silicon Valley's privacy-killing panopticon. Tried to fight fire with fire, as it were. Quote, As the spy gear piles up on my desk, my 10-year-old son asks me what my mission is. I'm hiding, I whisper, pointing in the direction I think is north, which is something I should probably know as a spy, from Silicon Valley, end quote. Check out the piece to see to what degree he succeeded or didn't in hiding. Vice, via the tech blog Tedium, has a great tech history and analysis piece up. In this era of trade wars with China, did you know that there once was, and actually recently, a very successful computer company in America that manufactured its devices here in America, in South Dakota, actually? It was called Gateway 2000. Remember those boxes with the cow spots on them? Yeah, it turns out that Gateway is actually a case study in the globalization of the supply chain. Quote, The thing about Gateway is that the company got really lucky for a few years. It had an enviable hot streak at a time when marketing could make a big impact. But when the going got tough, though, it turned to outsourcing, just like the rest of the tech industry, as a survival tactic. And while it happened with a trickle at first, when a leader with less commitment to the company's original goals was installed, it eventually turned into a flood. Whatever the underlying reasons, the fact of the matter is Gateway felt it could not execute on its original mandate, computers so middle American that they wore their affiliation directly on the box, while still keeping manufacturing and assembly inside the U.S. borders, end quote. And ZDNet has an interview with Guido Van Rossum, who created the programming language Python, which... Van Rossum created in his spare time, and some people think will soon become the most popular programming language in the world. Quote, Van Rossum released Python to the world via the Alt.Sources news group in 1991, under what was pretty much an open-source license, six years before the term was first coined, while Python Interpreter still had to be joined together into a compressed file from 21 separate parts and downloaded overnight on the Usenet network, it was still a vastly more efficient delivery mechanism than the hand deliveries of a few years earlier. I was hoping that there would be some kind of success, but I had done at least one other thing that I had released and basically ended up being a flop, he says, end quote. Well, nearly 30 years to an overnight success, right? And this may or may not be new, but have you heard of warshipping? Basically, it's a new way to hack into a target system by basically ginning up a cheap electronic device that you then mail directly to your target. Quote, once the warship locates a Wi-Fi network from inside the mailroom or on the recipient's desk, it listens for wireless data packets it can use to break into the network. The warship listens for a handshake, the process of authorizing a user to log onto the network, then sends that scrambled data over the cellular network back to the attacker's servers, which has far more processing power to crack the hash into a readable Wi-Fi password, end quote. Think about it. Hacking in to a target network without anyone even noticing. Maybe you're in your target's network before anyone even opens the box. Check out the TechCrunch piece about that. And finally, to paraphrase the insane clown posse, tape. How do it work? 
I'm talking about tape, T-A-P-E, adhesives. It's a serious question because, funny enough, it turns out that scientists aren't quite sure how tape and adhesives generally work. And it's worth trying to find out why tapes adhere so you can make them stick better to various materials while still being able to be removed. Tons of real-world applications still for figuring this particular thing out. Quote, Today, scientific theory fails to fully unite sheer peel and tack, according to SPC scientist Matteo Sicchiotti, and tape has, quote, defied many modeling attempts over the past 70 years, he and his team write in one paper. The difficulty is due to the complexities of the unsticking process. Tape first develops cavities between the adhesive and the surface to which it's stuck. These cavities grow, and eventually the adhesive stretches into long fibers ten times the tape's initial thickness before they snap. It can take a hundred to a thousand times more energy to stretch and break the fibers than it would to simply break the individual bonds between the tape's atoms and the atoms of the surface, says Sicchiotti. Energy is lost both to the stretching the fibers out, the viscous flow of the material, and to their actual breaking. Theories that explain soft polymers that deform or flow under pressure then regain their shape don't describe the extreme strain the tape fibers can withstand. Theories explaining thick fluids wouldn't explain the way that fibers cleanly detach after stretching. Theories that explain manufacturing material don't correctly predict the large energies required for unsticking the tape. They also give seemingly unrelated results for peel, shear, and tack, end quote. So yeah, today I learned that unlocking the secrets of tape is a potentially multi-billion dollar nut to crack. That is all for this week. Literally, because no weekend bonus episodes this weekend. I've gotten a little bit summer lazy, I'll admit, but I do have at least one bonus episode lined up for next weekend. Anyway, for now, I'll leave you with my traditional Jerry Springer slash Bill and Ted hybrid sign-off. This weekend, be excellent to yourselves and each other. Talk to you on Monday.